Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today we'll hear about how an early 20th century philanthropist and educator together launched a visionary program for educating black students. The Rosenwald Schools program is considered the most important initiative for black education in our nation's history. Nearly 5,000 public schools were built between 1912 and 1937 throughout the segregated South. Though its impact was epic, the Rosenwald School legacy isn't widely known today. Andrew Filer spent three and a half years photographing 105 of the remaining schools and gathering their remarkable stories in his new book, A Better Life for Their Children. He joins us now via Zoom. Andrew Filer, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's great to be with you. This is uh, this program is such a pillar of the arts community in, in Atlanta, and it's uh, great to be part of it. Well, thank you. How did you learn about the Rosenwald Schools? So I, uh, I had just turned into my publisher my first photography book at the end of 2014, and I was thinking about what I was going that, to... That, that first book was a portrait of a college campus... It was largely abandoned. And I used this notion of abandoned educational spaces, spaces that are very familiar to all of us, but is net, we're now populated by ghosts, to raise awareness around the simple fact that education has been the backbone of the American dream since before there was the United States of America. At critical moments in our history, we have embraced the power of education. The first taxpayer-funded school in America was created in 1644 in Dedham, Massachusetts, and there's a direct connection between that. The Land-Grant College Act in the mid eight, in the 1860s, historically Black colleges founded predominantly in the decades after the Civil War, to the Rosenwald schools, to uh, the educational provisions of the GI Bill, to Brown versus Board of Education, to some of the challenges we have today around college affordability and college access. 
And I was thinking about what I was going to do next. And I found myself at lunch with a woman named Jeannie Syriac, who originated the role of African-American heritage specialist at the Georgia State Historic Preservation Office. And she told me about Rosenwald schools. And I was shocked. Uh, I am a fifth generation Jewish Georgian. I have been a progressive activist my entire life. And the pillars of this story, Southern, Jewish, progressive activists, they're the pillars of my life. How could I have never heard of Rosenwald schools? So I came home and I Googled Rosenwald schools. And what I found was that there were a number of books on the topic, but there was no photo documentary. And so there was clearly such a direct connection between my first work around the power of education to this story, which is a very specific story of the power of education, that I decided then that that was I was going to pursue this story. Early in your research, what did you learn about the role of photography in the Rosenwald Schools project? Yeah, that's a good good question. Um, it, uh, so my process is to read and shoot and read and shoot, and the shooting inf- informs the reading, and the reading informs the shooting. And very early on in my my reading, what I found was this extraordinary story. The Rosenwald Schools program begins with a pilot of six schools all close to Tuskegee, where Booker T. Washington, who's one of the critical founders of the program, could keep an eye on these schools. And he sends photographs of students and teachers standing proudly in front of their schools back to Julius Rosenwald. And Rosenwald writes, writes to Washington that he is so moved by these images that he is motivated to, to expand the program. And these photographs continue to be taken throughout the history of the program of these students and teachers representing the hopes and dreams of their communities, standing out in front of these schools. And they become a very powerful component of the visual narrative of the program. All of my previous bodies of work were color. But those, the power of photography in this story is what led me to pay homage to those images by doing this entire body of work in black and white and horizontal, because I wanted to reflect that power, the visual language of photography, and how it shaped, helped shape the history of this program. Yeah. Would you talk a bit more about the relationship between Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington. Rosenwald was the president of Sears Roebuck at the time. He essentially made it the most successful retail store in the world. Yeah, so Julius Rosenwald is born to Jewish immigrants who fled religious persecution in Germany. Uh, And he grows up in Springfield, Illinois, across the street from Abraham Lincoln. And and in fact, today, there is this national historic site that's four city blocks in downtown Springfield and Julius uh, that that is built around uh, Lincoln's home from when he was a state legislator in Springfield. And the house across the street, Julius Rosenwald's childhood home, is the offices of the superintendent of that national historic site. And so he rises to become the president of Sears Roebuck and Company in 1908 and leads the company until his death in 1932. He helps turn Sears into the world's largest retailer of his era. 
And he becomes one of the earliest and greatest philanthropists in American history. And his cause is what later becomes known as civil rights. Booker T. Washington, born into slavery in Virginia, is one of the most prominent African-American voices in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, he becomes an educator and he is the founding principal of the historically black college in Tuskegee, in Tuskegee, Alabama, known as Tuskegee Institute. Now the two men meet in 1911, specifically May 18th, 1911. And I say that because this coming May 18th is the 110th anniversary of their meeting. Julius Rosenwald agrees to go on the board of Tuskegee Institute, but they keep talking about what they can do together. And they come up with this idea that becomes known as Rosenwald schools. Now you have to understand two things. Number one, this is 19, 1911, 1912. This is before the Great Migration, which only, which only begins later that decade. So 90% of African-Americans live in the South. And public schools for African-Americans are mostly shacks with a fraction of the funding provided to schools that educate uh, white children. Uh, and many jurisdictions do not even have public schools for African-Americans. And so they reach out and they form one of the earliest collaborations between Blacks and Jews, and they reach out to the Black communities of the South, and they say, we want you to be a full partner in your progress. And so we expect you to contribute to a school. And if you will contribute, and we will count as your contribution, cash, land, materials, and labor. And if you will reach out to the school board, the white school board, because we want to create black-white dialogue as a foundation for future progress. And we want these to be public schools. So the white school board has to agree to own, maintain, and staff the school, pay for the teachers. You do those things, Julius Rosenwald will make a substantial contribution to school construction. And from 1912, when ground is broken on the first Rosenwald school, which is a Lochapoca school in Lee County, Alabama, until 1937, when Franklin Roosevelt speaks at the dedication of the Eleanor Roosevelt School in Meriwether County, Georgia. 1912, 1937, this program builds 4,978 schools across 15 southern and border states. And it is transformative to America. It is transformative to the African-American experience. Truly. I understand why Rosenwald and Washington wanted buy-in from the African-American community. They wanted the people to feel it was their own. It seems a little scary to me when we think about the white boards of education with the grants requiring that local white school boards agree to own, maintain, and staff the school, wasn't there a risk to the ongoing commitment of the white school board? I mean, school board members can be fickle or hurtful. They, they don't remain on a board forever. Well, first of all, the, the, the program morphs over time. In the early years of the program, there's, first of all, it would vary by jurisdiction, right? Not every jurisdiction would have to have Rosenwald schools, right? 
the African-American community had to agree to participate and the, and the white school board had to agree to participate. And so there would be self-selection, right? There are certain communities where they were, where the school system was led by educational reformers. There were certain school systems where they were simply happy to have this funded by the black community. Remember the black community is already being taxed to pay for white schools and yet they have to dig deeper to help fund their own school and they take on this burden. But then over time, this morphs and it morphs in the latter part of the program, a substantial portion of the funding actually comes from the white school boards. And that's because number one, Julius Rosenwald's contribution gives them essentially political cover. But number two, the great migration is accelerating. And the white leadership in the community understands that if they are going to keep their workforce, they have to offer more educational opportunities. And so by the end of the program, a lot of them, uh, the school systems are much are, are active funders in the program. Yeah. Is it too cynical to say that the white school boards also saw this as supporting segregated education? Uh you know, these schools are segregated, but I think you have to put it into, I would put it into a particular historical context. The Rosenwald schools have this sweeping impact. There are two economists from the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago that have done five studies of Rosenwald schools. And what their data shows is that prior to World War I, there was this persistent black-white education gap in the South. That gap closes precipitously between World War I and World War II. And the largest driver of that achievement, and it is an achievement, is Rosenwald schools. And so the educational landscape dramatically changes because of these schools and sets up the ability uh, that lays some of the central groundwork of what becomes the civil rights movement. And then in fact, many of the leaders of the, and the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement come through these schools. Medgar Evers, Mississippi field secretary for the NAACP, who is later murdered for his activism, went to a Rosenwald school. Maya Angelou writes about her experiences in an Arkansas Rosenwald school in her book, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And Congressman John Lewis, who wrote this just extraordinary introduction to my book uh, and talks about his very first day of school in in, Arkansas, in an Alabama Rosenwald school, he attended, he attended a Rosenwald school. And so um, these schools not only fundamentally change the landscape of African-American education, they fundamentally help create the leadership uh, soldiers of the, of the movement to come. Author and photographer Andrew Filer discussing his new book, A Better Life for Their Children. We'll return with more of that conversation about the Rosenwald schools after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. 
And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with photographer Andrew Feiler. His new book is A Better Life for Their Children. Julius Rosenwald, Booker T. Washington, and the 4,978 Schools That Changed America. We've been talking about the creation of the Rosenwald Schools, which provided free education to African-American children in the South in the early 20th century. I asked how many Rosenwald Schools were in Georgia. There were originally 242 Rosenwald Schools in Georgia. About 40-something remain and only maybe half of those have been restored. And that mirrors the experience nationally of the 4,978 schools, only about, but nationally, only about 500 survived, and only about half of those have been restored. And so when I went out on my quest, I drove 25,000 miles across all 15 program states and uh, shot 105 schools. And also, and in the course of that process, I met these extraordinary people who were involved in one way or another to this program, former students, former teachers, preservationists who are actively trying to save these schools. And in some cases, people who are all three, former students who became educators and who become the keepers of the flame of history and memory in their communities by leading the preservation of these what are really essential community resources, historic resources, um, the locus of, of history and memory. And they become the emotional heart of this narrative. Yeah. Would you talk about the role of the National Trust for Historic Preservation regarding the Rosenwald Schools? Yeah, so in, in 2002, the National Trust for Historic Preservation designates Rosenwald Schools collectively as one of the most imperiled historic resources in the United States. And it, it is transformative because it brings attention and it brings um, focus and it brings funding to, uh, to the cause of Rosenwald School restoration and preservation. Uh, and now, these many years later, most uh, many of the schools that have been restored uh, were uh, there were funds contributed by the National Trust. There was attention brought to their ability to fundraise by the National Trust. A hundred schools have been listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And across the South, communities that have unrestored raising world schools, leaders in those communities, are sometimes alumni and for, um, former students in these schools, former teachers in these schools have come to, are coming together and raising funds to, to, to create adaptive reuses of the 105 schools that I went to, only a handful remain in use as educational spaces. 
but they have many of them have been adaptively reused. Some of them are community centers, some of them are church halls, some of them are private homes, some of them are apartments, and some of them are museums. And so there are leaders across the, uh, across the South looking at ways that they can save these structures through an adaptive reuse model. Let's talk about the photographs earlier in our conversation. You described your visual language, uh, the importance of black and white and horizontal depiction. You showed the outside and interior of the Emory School in Hale County, Alabama, early in the book. What does its structure reveal? Uh, that's a good question. So let me take a half a step back and explain the, because the, the story of the architect of that, of the Emory School is, the Emory School is, is built in Hale County, Alabama, which has a storied history. It is where, it is the locus of, of the famous mid 20th century book by Bill Agee with photographs by Walker Evans, uh, let us now praise famous men. It's also the home of William Christenberry and now the home of Rural Studio, the design collaborative out of Auburn University. And it is uh, built in, in, in 1915. It is the li- likely the oldest surviving Rosenwald school. And it was designed, our design team at Tuskegee is led by a man named Robert Robinson Taylor. Robert Robinson Taylor is the first African-American to matriculate at MIT and the first accredited African-American architect. And he leads this design team with a vision of progressive era architecture, that architecture in service to education. And there are certain design principles that he lays out in these absolute first Rosenwald schools. They have large windows because many of these schools did not have uh, electricity in the beginning so that the classroom can be well lit. They have cloakrooms so that students can leave their dirty outer garments and keep the educational spaces clean. They have brick columns through which potbelly stoves vented, which kept the classrooms warm. And they had, uh, in this particular school, it's what's known as a one-teacher school, but it had two educational spaces that are separated by a room divider that was a series of folding doors that could be closed to separate these two rooms or pulled back so that the the space could be used as a community center after hours. And that very basic language laid out by Robert Robinson Taylor and his colleagues at Tuskegee continues through the entire program. Okay, you have just given me the ideal segue, Andrew, because I was next going to mention that you include a wonderful photo of Valerie Jarrett in this book. What is her connection to the Rosenwald schools? So as I said earlier, my uh, my process is to read and shoot and shoot and read. And in my research early on, I came across this incredible story of Robert Robinson Taylor. Uh, and I quickly found out that his great granddaughter is Valerie Jarrett, who was special assistant to President Obama uh, and during his tenure in the White House. And so I reached out to, to Ms. Jarrett and I asked her if she would participate in this project, if I could do her portrait as a way of sharing the story of her great grandfather. And she got back to me instantly and said she would love to participate. 
And so I, um, you know, each of these portraits, and there's 21 portraits in the book, each of them has to be sort of crafted in a way that tells its story. And in this case, it's Valerie Jarrett, but it's in the service of telling the story of her great-grandfather. Uh, and so Robert Robinson Taylor was honored on a U.S. postage stamp in 2013. And so uh, I, my portrait of Ms. Jarrett is in her Washington home. Uh, holding this sheet of stamps with a visage of her great-grandfather. Oh, it's just wonderful. The Jefferson Jacobs School is stately in your depiction. What was its history? The Jefferson Jacobs School, which is in Jefferson County, Kentucky, is essentially has its own architecture. It's a very early Rosenwald School, 19-teens, and... What it shows is while the, the, the Rosenwald School program laid out certain design standards, including the premise that these schools were to be modest. And they expected modesty in part because it saved cost and in part because they didn't want to attract the ire, otherwise known as arson, of the white citizenry. The Jefferson Jacobs School doesn't really follow that standard. It's a two-story building with two classrooms on the, on the, on the main floor, uh, the, essentially the second floor, and a larger space for industrial education, otherwise known as today what we would call vocational education, trades for the men, home economics for the women. That was there, so that was on the ground floor. It originally had this grand staircase up to the, um, to the second floor. It has a cupola. And the cupolas were especially anathema to one of the architectural leaders of the Rosenwald School's program, because a guy named Dressler, who was a professor at George Peabody College in Nashville, because he saw a cupola, cupolas as reflective of church architecture and to have that on a schoolhouse violated his concept of separation of church and state. Uh, so there were very, very few cupolas. Of the 105 schools I went to, three of them have cupolas. But what that shows is the agency of the black community. That the black community was handed these guidelines, but sometimes they said, you know, we want a cupola. And, and I think that there's great power in that narrative and the fact that the Black community asserted itself and asserted what it expected for its uh, school and its school children. And, and there's another wonderful example, the Lincoln School in, um, in Tennessee, all of the walls and ceilings have this beautiful decorative pressed tin. I didn't see that on any other school. That is the, the, the inherent pride in making the, the aesthetic decision to decorate the school in that way speaks volumes of how proud the community was of their school. The Eastern Colored School looks very elegant. What distinguishes its story? So the, the, that's, the, that's, the school in Eastern Maryland is in Talbot County, which is the county that Frederick Douglass is born into and as a slave. In the aftermath of the Civil War, the Freedmen's Bureau 
builds some schools in, in, in a number of jurisdictions, including on this site, which is essentially the center of the black community, the now free black community in Eastern, Mar Eastern Maryland, in Talbot County. Frederick Douglass comes back to that school to speak to its students two years before his death. And he gives a speech in which he talks about how he, has, he was born into slavery, but took on this role of activist, of abolitionist, and eventually becomes this very high-ranking government official, and how he sees education as the center of that. And he, and he tells the students that they must take their education seriously, that that is their path forward and their path into America. That speech is so powerful that two years later when he dies, it is quoted in his obituary in the New York Times. Well, that school over time deteriorates. And so when the Rosenwald School Program comes to Talbot County, they build a new school on the, the site of this original Freedmen's Bureau School that had hosted uh, Frederick Douglass. And that is the school that's portrayed in my book. Photographer Andrew Filer discussing his new book about the Rosenwald schools, A Better Life for Their Children. We'll be back with more of that interview in a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to my conversation with the author and photographer, Andrew Filer. His new book, A Better Life for Their Children, is about the Rosenwald schools in America, built to provide education for black children in the South during the early 20th century. The book reveals a disturbing story about enslaved African Americans on the Trail of Tears. That was one of the most shocking stories that I came across. And, and let me just add, well, let me tell the story, and, and then I'll tell you what that then leads me to. So the Trail of Tears is the displacement of five Native American tribes from east of the Appalachians to Oklahoma. Many people know that story. Few people know that those Native American tribes had black slaves. And when emancipation comes to Oklahoma, the freed blacks form a series of all black townships, 50 of them. And they actually advertise and send people out to the South to recruit freed Blacks to join them in creating this new promised land in Oklahoma. There are 50 of these all-Black townships. 13 of them have Rosenwald schools. Only one of those survives. That's Rose, Rosenwald Hall in Lima, Oklahoma. And so I, did, I went to Lima, Oklahoma to, take, to do the photograph of, of this school. This started out purely as a body of documentary photography. But I came across such richness, so many incredible stories that I was moved to write a story that goes, a short story that goes with each image, or in some cases, pairs of images. This story, the Frederick Douglass story for the Eastern School, the story of 
the meaning of cupolas and their connection to the design idiom, the story of Robert Robinson Taylor. These are the stories that I write about in this book. And so as people spend time with this book, I hope they will spend time with the images, but I hope they'll take the time as well to read these stories because I think they will find them inspiring. I think they'll be moved. And I think they will, uh, you know, this is a story of transformation in America, you know, at a fundamental level with Booker T. Washington and Julius Rosenwald and the black communities and the white school boards did as they came together and they fundamentally changed this country. And I think that the, the central narrative here to all of those folks now walking and you know, marching in the streets for, for social justice. The message of this story is you can change the world. Our individual actions do matter. And so uh, I think that, the, that, these, that these stories, this narrative will make everybody a little bit more optimistic about the possibility of change in America. Mm. Your photograph of the Oak Grove School is very dramatic. Dark clouds in the sky, trees mostly without leaves. You spoke about Hale County, Alabama, as being the place where William Agee and Walker Evans began, uh, let us now praise famous men. Is the moody depiction here, your tribute to photographer Walker Evans. When you're in Hale County, Alabama, as a photographer, you're on hallowed ground. <laughs> and you just, you cross into that, into the county, and it just feels like a special place. And in fact, as, you're, as I was driving through the county, I came across one of the, the churches that Chris and Barry made famous in some of his photographs. Um, but I, th I also, uh, and there's a lot of times when I had to stand in a place for a long time for the light to work or the clouds to work or the, the weather to work. In this particular case, I did a lot of research on, on each of these schools and I knew, courtesy of Google Maps, and often street view, I knew their orientation. So I knew which ones I had to be at in the morning and which ones I had to be at at different times, you know, other times of the day. And so I knew I needed to be there early in the morning. So I actually had spent that night in Tuscaloosa and I got up at like five in the morning to go down there and it was raining. And so it, in this particular case, just briefly stopped raining and, the, but we had these low, dark, mists coming through the sky and that was really the aesthetic and it had more to do with the cooperation of the weather and the role of the weather than anything else. Ah. The National Museum of African American History has a Rosenwald display. Would you explain that connection to your photo of Ron Hope? Yeah, so so there was a the state school superintendent in South Carolina, a white state school superintendent, was very supportive of the Rosenwald Schools program. And in fact, every county in South Carolina had Rosenwald Schools. One of the counties that had the most Rosenwald Schools was Newberry County, which actually had 26 Rosenwald Schools. And one of the things that speaks to is not just the density of the African-American population there, 
But the fact that there were no school buses provided to the African-American children, they all had to walk to schools. And so you end up with 26 of these smaller schoolhouses rather than, say, a larger consolidated school of the kind that we think of today. So the school is uh, Hope's family sells for $5, which even in that era was not much money. Effectively, they don't, the family donates two acres of land for the school. And the, the Black community names the school, the Hope School, in his honor. His great nephew, Ron Hope, has a career as an army officer, retires back to Palmyria, South Carolina, and decides to take it. The school is completely falling apart and decides to make it his cause to single-handedly restore this school. And he does so. He does it by himself. And he ends up donating six school desks, one potbelly stove, and the sign that had the original sign from outside the school proclaiming Hope School. And those are on display in the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington. And I'll just say one more thing. I, so I, sh I, I had been in touch with Ron Hope and I went to do his portrait at the school. And he shows up wearing a Vietnam veteran's ball cap and a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> and I cannot believe how lucky I am. <laughs> and actually, I will tell you, this is the, it's actually turns out to be the very first portrait I did. I mean, I had this idea that I was, I, you know, I started with the buildings and the exteriors, and then I went inside these buildings and I had the adaptive, the, the exteriors tell the architectural narrative and how they change over time from these, one, two, and three teacher small white clabbered schools to by the end of the program, they're building one, two, and three story brick buildings to the interiors that tell the adaptive reuse narrative. And I have decided to layer in these portraits and Ron Hope is the very first portrait. And I'm going back to my car to get my lights and I'm texting my wife, you're not gonna believe this. <laughs> He's wearing a ball, this Vietnam veterans ball cap in this Hawaiian shirt and it was the success of that image that made me understand that, yes, the portraits are, would be one of the pillars of the way to tell this story. Absolutely. In a certain way, the layout of your photos builds momentum, and that's striking when we see the photo of Leslie Parks Bailey. Would you describe it? So... Julius Rosenwald works with Booker T. Washington to create this program called Rosenwald Schools, which Julius Rosenwald's, Julius Rosenwald's philanthropy did something else that was incredibly important. He created this program in 1928 called the Rosenwald Fellowships, which become the largest source of support for African-American creatives, scientists, and intellectuals in the 20th century. The grants go to literally a who's who of African-American intelligentsia in the middle part of the 20th century. James Weldon Johnson, Jacob Lawrence, Marian Anderson, uh, Zora Neale Hurston. And the very first photographer to be awarded a grant is Gordon Parks. And Gordon Parks has long been one of my role models in photography. I had first seen Gordon Parks's 
photographic prints in an exhibition at the Corcoran Gallery in the 1980s in Washington. I had the great honor of meeting Gordon Parks and spending some time with him in the early 1990s when he was out on book tour for his memoir, Voices in the Mirror. And I learned that he was the first photographer to be awarded a, a Rosenwald grant. And come full circle to Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, my wife and I are friends with his daughter who lives here in Atlanta, Leslie Parks Bailey. And so I talked to Leslie about this idea that I had that I wanted to work with her to do a, to do a portrait of her to tell the story of her father and his connection to the Rosenwald Fellowship Program. And so I had this idea of her um, embracing a photograph that he had made. And she put me in touch with the Gordon Parks Foundation. And immediately they email me, they're totally excited, they're happy to participate. And they send me this self-portrait that turns out to be an image that Gordon Parks submitted as part of his application to the Rosenwald Fund. And I'm like, boom, that's it. So they send, they send this photograph to me and I do this portrait of Leslie embracing the self-portrait of her dad. And I have her sitting on a manhole cover. This is in downtown Atlanta because I wanted specifically to pay homage to this body of work that, that Gordon Parks had done in 1952 in Life Magazine which shows a man coming out of a manhole cover. It is his illustration of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. It's stunning. In terms of the evolving story of the Rosenwald Fund, when you mentioned the Rosenwald Fellowship Program and that veritable who's who in mid-20th century American intelligentsia. Julius Rosenwald predated Warren Buffett in his attitude toward philanthropy. What did that mean for the Rosenwald Fund? So Julius Rosenwald believed that the generation that had helped create the wealth should be the beneficiaries of that wealth so that the philanthropy that was the result of his business success should benefit the people that helped create that business success. And so he mandated that all of the funds in the Rosenwald Fund should be distributed within 25 years of his death. That concept has become, as you mentioned, very sort of fashionable in philanthropy today. Warren Buffett has made that has made a mandate like that. Uh, Bill Gates has made a mandate like that. Bernie Marcus has made a mandate like that. And in fact, the Rosenwald Fund, Julius Rosenwald dies in 1932. The Rosenwald Fund, in fact, expends all of its remaining reserves by uh, in 15 years, and the fund shuts down in 1948. And it's one of the reasons, well, Julius Rosenwald was, did not name these schools Rosenwald schools. They become known as Rosenwald schools. Julius Rosenwald, in fact, is the major philanthropist behind the, behind the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. They wanted to put his name on it, and he refused. But at the same time, this mandate is, I think, one of the reasons why this program remains hidden history today. Certainly the scope and sweep of this program is largely unknown. 
But and Rosenwald is simply less well known, in part, I think, because of this mandate, than some of his philanthropic peers, like Ford, like Carnegie, uh, and uh, like Rockefeller, uh, because those foundations persist today. Yeah. Andrew, what has been the impact of this project on your life? I think I am a, first of all, I would say I'm a better photographer at the end of every project than I am at the beginning. I certainly think that this, while my process has been to shoot and read and read and shoot, and the shooting informs the reading and the reading informs the shooting, you know, this particular project took on an entirely different dimension with all of the stories that I crafted. I ended up reading more than 40 books and more than 50 white papers and more than 50 National Register of Historic Places nomination forms. And I think it has changed my process in the sense that that historical component, I do have a a history degree. I've long been involved in civic life and my my photographic voice reflects my civic voice and my interest in civic endeavors. I think that my interest in history is now much more integrated into my practice. But I think the other thing that I would say is this, that a project like this, at so many levels for so long, is largely a solo endeavor. I drove 25,000 miles largely by myself. I sat at my computer researching Rosenwald schools, trying to find these schools, look, using everything from just from you know Google to Google Maps and Street View and finding the people associated with them and finding the location. I've often had tried to, you know, to find a school, but you also have to find the addresses, the GPS coordinates sometimes. And then and there were certain individuals who, who were part of this process. My, my wife certainly shared this journey and as I thought through how to tell the story visually, but it's, it's, a, it's a small group and it's largely a, a solo endeavor. And then you bring it out into the world. And the reaction has just been really quite astonishing. I mean, this work is going to be in Smithsonian Magazine. It's going to be in the Wall Street Journal. And I'll just, I'll just show you, share with you, I got this email from a photographer in uh, Michigan who I don't know, who has seen an advanced copy of this book. And he wrote me this email. However long I have the opportunity to live, this will be on the shortest list of greatest emails I've ever gotten. He writes, truly, this may be the best example of documentary work and storytelling combined I have ever seen. You have captured the honor, dignity, strength, and maybe even aspirations of a marginalized and disadvantaged group, completely humanizing their situation in a most compelling fashion. I mean, (laughs) I tear up every time I read that. With good reason. Andrew Filer, congratulations, and thank you very much. Uh, Lois, thank you. It's an honor to be on your show. Thank you for all that you do to build the community of arts in Atlanta. Author and photographer Andrew Filer. His new book is A Better Life for Their Children. Julius Rosenwald, Booker T. Washington, and the 4,978 Schools That Changed America. The author will be in virtual conversation with former Atlanta Mayor Shirley Franklin tomorrow at 7 p.m., an online event from the Atlanta History Center. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash 
City Lights. Andrew Filer is board chair of public broadcasting Atlanta. Atlanta artist and conservationist Pam Longabardi has made it her life's mission to clean up our oceans and beaches. She recycles artifacts she finds into her artwork. Her piece, Rainbow's End, is part of the exhibition Three Billion at the Hudgens Center for the Arts. When I spoke with Pam last year, she explained her early involvement with the environment and wildlife. My dad was an ocean lifeguard. Then he studied biochemistry, and he ended up working at Union Carbide. And so he was always getting me extremely interested in science. And I have a a background in studying science, um, even a bachelor's degree. And I was kind of born into the age of plastics. I remember him bringing home... Uh, experiments that they were doing at Union Carbide. And one time he opened this tub and put in two chemicals and this foam just started (gasps) shooting out all over the kitchen table. And lo and behold, this is like expansion foam now known as great stuff. And it was crazy because, you know, it was really exciting to be on the brink of that. I think they realized they were making something new, but nobody had any idea where this was going to go and what it was going to turn into. And I think we sort of opened this weird Pandora's box with a monster inside, and we had no idea. So I think, you know, somehow the ocean, the plastic, my deep love and concern for the natural world, and all of those things came together in 2006 when I stumbled upon these piles and piles and piles of plastic that were being vomited out of the ocean in the most remote part of Hawaii that you could ever imagine. And I think it just was, to me, it was like a huge wake-up call. It was a call to action, and I felt that I was getting a direct communication from the ocean that we need to pay attention to the stuff we've made that we've taken so little concern over. And was that the beginning of your Drifters project? Exactly. Would you tell us a little more about it? Sure. Drifters project started at that moment on the beach. I didn't have a name for it yet, but I just, it, I realized that I had to do a few things. One, I felt like I was witnessing a crime against nature. And I think it was perhaps an unintentional crime, but it still was because I could see that there were too many things there that didn't belong in this remote, uninhabited bank of the south point of the Big Island. And so I first started taking these photographs, like forensic site photographs, to document it. And then I realized quickly, I've got to take back this material itself as evidence. I really didn't think anybody would believe me, you know, with the amount of material that was there and what it was. And then as I started kind of digging deeper into the stuff, I realized that this is fascinating and this really is a kind of cultural archaeology of our time right now. And it is the material legacy of, you know, the contemporary humans you know, all of those things kind of came together in such a way that I started doing it by myself and really for years. And I felt like, you know, I was alone in this thing and it was too big. And then I realized I'm not alone. There's a ton of people who are actually waking up in the next several years after I noticed it for the first time. And suddenly, you know, it, it, it was the birth of a kind of movement and it was a global movement. 
And suddenly, I mean, I even get chills when I think about this because I do think the ocean is calling to us and the ocean as the voice of a, a larger consciousness or something that humans have got to wake up to the effects of our own actions. I don't remember when exactly, but there was a photograph of a whale that washed ashores, and there were plastic bottles inside. Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah, it just happens all the time. And the thing is, I think because we now have our sites sort of focused on this, and the media is helping people become aware of this, we can see it now, and we can see it in, in, in all of its horror. Artist Pam Longabardi addresses environmental issues in her work. Her piece, Rainbow's End, is on view in 3 billion. The exhibition at the Hudgens Center for the Arts runs through April 24th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll learn about a new app designed as a digital marketplace to connect people within the music, film, and content creation industries. Summer Evans is City Lights producer. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy, and I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Find archived interviews and shows on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.